We are in week number seven of our fall discipleship series called On the Job Training. Um, The idea behind our discipleship series is that to be a disciple of Jesus means not just being a student of Jesus, of course it means being a student of Jesus, but it also means, as the title implies, that we are learning what it means to follow Jesus as we follow Jesus. To be an apprentice of Jesus is, is to follow him, obviously yes, as a student, but as a a apprentice who learns not only to know what Jesus knows, but to do what Jesus does. Um, and so that's the idea behind our on-the-job training. We learn as we live. Um, when I was in, in college, I needed a job to pay the bills as one often does, right? I had a car and needed food and those types of things. And so um, at one point, I went to a uh, distribution center uh, that was up the road um, from the school and got a job loading trucks for this, uh, at the, this, this distribution center. Um, it was a large regional distribution center for a large retail company. Um, and the way that it worked is truckloads, hundreds of truckloads would come in every day and the, the freight would get offloaded and stored in the warehouse. And then I was on the shipping department. So we I got hired in to load 53-foot semis, the trailers, um, with freight going to different stores. Um, And the the phrase behind when you would load, you get trained to load these trailers was floor to ceiling, nose to tail. Because we didn't want to pay to ship air, right? You wanted to pack your items in the truck as well as you could. They called it brick brick layer loading. Has anybody ever worked in either distribution or retail side? Have you sent trucks or received trucks? Um, Yeah, so I was a loader for a while and I got pretty good at it to the point where I kind of got noticed by my supervisors and fast forward two years and now I'm the shipping supervisor um, responsible for these truckloads that go out to these stores. Um, Our shift would send about 50,000 cases an eight-hour shift out the door. And it'd be anything you could find in this store. Um, I'll just tell you, it's Kmart stores, right? So anything you could have bought at Kmart in those days, we shipped. So um, snowblowers, air conditioners, uh, food, um, anything you can think of, clothes, it all went on the same truck. And then there's rules for these loaders in terms of obviously you can't put a car battery on top of, you know, food, right? There's certain rules in terms of, and you can't put heavy stuff on top of the light stuff. So you're loading these trucks, floor to ceiling, nose to tail, but you don't get to choose the items that come to you. You have a conveyor belt that comes from throughout this whole building, this million square foot building, and it all filters through and it gets sorted out on the right conveyor line. It comes down into your door and you just get the next box that's coming. And when I was a loader, when I first started out, they wanted us to load about 400 cases an hour. Um, By the time I was back in there as a supervisor, they wanted loaders to load about 600 cases an hour. Um, They had increased the productivity that much. So you got this conveyor belt that just never never stops, right? It keeps coming. If if you're loading too slow, a little light will come on that says your line is three quarters of the way full. And if you don't fix it then, then a red light comes on that says your line is all the way full that you're shutting down the rest of the conveyors in the building because it can't sort onto your line fast enough. Um, And so there was a lot of pressure on being fast, being quick, being efficient, doing it right, 
but doing it quickly. But like I said, the goal wasn't to get stuff on a truck. The goal was to get stuff to the store so they could sell it. That's where you make money, right? And so getting stuff on a truck that breaks or loading your trailer so poorly that some of the items don't fit on there um, doesn't help the company. It might say, oh, I got my line cleared off, but it didn't help the company's bottom line. And so there was this tension of quick, fast, but with quality, right? Well, if you've ever been, there's a few people that raise their hands, if you've ever worked on the retail side of things, been in a, on the store responsible for receiving these trucks, I'm sure me and my team in this distribution center were often the target of some pretty negative comments. You open up the semi-door after it's traveled a couple hundred miles and stuff just falls down on you, right? And you don't, and it's mess, and you, you're in the store and you're going, why don't, why don't they stack better? Why don't they build better? Why don't they do this right? You know, this is broken, that's broken. Um, and so ours was no different, that was the case. And so we would get calls from these stores to the distribution center to the point where we had to start having our loaders have a piece of paper on the wall and they would have to sign off, uh, put their name on their load. Yes, I loaded this truck, um, this is my work. So when the store uh, received the stuff and they were upset about what it looked like or if it was really good, that never really happened, but um, I mean there was good loads but we never got compliments back. But um, the complaints would come in and say, oh this load would come in and and this was the person that did it. The problem was um, there's no incentive for a loader to put their name on it, right? They didn't want to, there was no reason to. So they would write fake names. Um, they would write other people's names. Um, you know what I mean? Like if, if this is a mechanism to get you in trouble, um, why put your name on it? As a supervisor, I had 30 docks that were operating all at the same time. And it was, it was fast-paced, it was chaotic, it was exhausting. Um, I could not get into every trailer and inspect everything that was happening in these 53-foot trailers every hour of every day. I just could not. And so things would go out, and I'd be like, oh, man, I can't believe we did that. Or I'd get a call back, this, this guy's name, but you don't have somebody like that, right? we get the complaints. And so they, they escalated the response. They said, supervisors, uh, you have to sign off on this piece of paper now. Uh, it's your name that is going on this wall. It is your name that's attached to this work. And that had the effect. Me and the other supervisors, who you get to be a supervisor by being a really good worker, um, so before we would send stuff out with our names on it, sometimes we would ask the spotter in the yard to move the trailer to an empty dock that we weren't using, and then we would stick around after our shift and fix the mess that somebody else made because it was my name that was on it. And I didn't want my name to be represented by poor work, right? Ultimately, as a supervisor, I was responsible for it. Um, other people were doing work, but it represented me. And I had a, a high standard of what I expected. And I was, like I said, I was a good loader and I expected loads to go out with my name on them to represent that well. And that's the, kind of the idea I tell all of that to tell this, kind of lay this foundation 
that we often do things, what we do, say, our behaviors and attitudes represents other people. Right? Um, parents. Have you ever told your kids, you're not going to do that because what you do reflects poorly on me? You represent the family, right? We don't do that here. This is the, the Griffin name that you're carrying with you. Your mom taught you better than that, right? Kids do things that represent parents, um, spouses. Um, you represent one another, right? As you go out, are you really wearing that? I can't believe you said that. Right? You've had these conversations. Right? We represent each other, sadly, um, for some of us. Um, no. Uh, employee and employers, right? In the, the situation I was describing there, I had people that reported to me. I was their supervisor, and their work represented my ability to supervise them. Um, and honestly, my reputation within that company was somewhat shaped by the work that other people did. Um, students and teachers, we have any school teachers in here? Um, we have daycare. Um, that's not so much in terms of like this, I was thinking like standardized testing. Like every year they take all these tests and it kind of presents a picture of the district, but it's, it's a report card on the teachers to some extent, like this is how well your class is doing, that type of thing, and those are the conversations they're having. So the students and the work that they do reflects, whether justly or unjustly, uh, the teachers that are teaching these students. Um, players and coaches, have you ever seen a coach get fired because their team didn't uh, measure up? Right, it probably wasn't the coach's fault, he was probably a really good coach, like he won in this other team. Um, I'm a Cubs fan. Uh, you know, so I grew up watching the Cubs not be great. And then in 2016, we won the World Series. Our coach was Joe Madden. He had won a World Series with Tampa. And then a couple years later, we fired Joe Madden. Right? He's the one that helped us win the World Series. He had won a World Series with another team. He got hired by a different team and got fired again this year. Is he a bad coach all of a sudden? Did he wake up one day and realize he didn't know how to coach? No, sometimes players represent and what they do and accomplish has an impact on and represents what the coach's uh, reputation is. Um, or any type of individual and group dynamic, right? So if you, uh, you go to buy a car and the car salesman kind of gives you the runaround, then you walk away muttering about all car salesmen. Um, if you have a bad experience at a coffee shop, then you can, like, you know what I'm saying? Like the individual, one person can represent an entire group of people. The work that they do, the behaviors that they have, can shape the way we see others. And so that's the kind of the theme for today. What we do represents other people. Um, and in, in a culture that's very individualistic, um, this is a, maybe a challenging concept. I mean, nothing I've said is, isn't like deeper. It's pretty obvious, I think. But but I think the cultural streams of individualism says, well, I, what I do matters for me and what you do matters for you and there's no overlap or interaction. But the idea is that what we do represents what other people think about other people. Um, anyway, with that in mind, let's turn to our scripture for the 
for the message, which is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. It'll be on the screens, or um, if you want to use a Bible that's under the chairs there, or if you have your own Bible or a device with the Bible on it. However you want to follow along, um, I invite you to do that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We pray that through your spirit today, you would gather our minds that they may be one with you. Open our ears that they may hear your word. Soften our hearts that we may receive your wisdom. Speak to us, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. So, 2 Timothy is a letter and we covered a little bit this last week if you uh, were here or heard the sermon. Second um, Timothy is a letter from Paul to Timothy, um, written probably in a prison, like a dungeon-type prison. Paul was in this prison. Uh, and he knew, pretty, pretty assuredly, he knew that his life was probably going to come to an end. He didn't maybe know how or when, but um, he's imprisoned, he's thrown in this dungeon-type prison, and he knew that this wasn't looking good for him. And so that's that's the context of this. There's Paul that's suffering uh, because of his proclaiming of the gospel, the work that he did for churches, sharing the truth of Jesus. He ends up in prison. Um, And he says, you can't chain up the word of God, so even if you've chained Paul up, the word of God is going to continue to be shared. So he takes encouragement in that. He hasn't given up, but he knows that even if he's imprisoned, even if his life comes to an end, the work, the ministry must go on. And so he's writing to Timothy to make sure that Timothy knows how to run with what's been handed to him. We talked about uh, last week Paul handing Timothy the baton of faith. How did you know you could trust Timothy? And so he's, he's, he's giving in this letter instructions to Timothy on how to carry on in Paul's absence. And so this week he, he, he comes in and, and, and there's a lot that he says here. There's that, that saying um, which he borrows from someplace else. He didn't write that. It's just kind of a, a phrase that maybe churches were saying or uh, maybe even part of a hymn that had been written or shared. Um, but one of the main ideas that he tells Timothy in this short little passage of scripture, he says, immature behavior like arguing over words 
is of no value and it hurts those who hear it. Right? He says, stand before God and tell people to not quarrel over words that have no value. It brings ruin or harm or hurt to those who hear it. Which is an interesting statement. Because my instinct would be, well, if you were in quarreling, if I was, if I was in a fight with somebody, I would bring harm to myself or the other person in the fight, right? You think Paul might say, hey, don't, don't get in arguments because it's bad for you. But that's not what Paul says. He, he says, don't get into quarreling over words, arguing over words, because it'll bring ruin to those who hear it. It will hurt those who witness it. How does it hurt them? If you're just watching people or listening to people argue over something, how does this hurt them? Well, what Paul is getting at here is that it proclaims the wrong gospel about Jesus. It tells the wrong story of who Jesus is. Right? If we as, as Christians, um, and this is what Paul is, is telling Timothy, if, if the Christians are arguing, if they cannot be reconciled, if they cannot be forgiving and grace-filled and live in community that God has put together, um, then we're telling the wrong story about who Jesus is. Does that make sense? Right? Because everything that we do tells a story. The church is telling a story by how they live. And so Paul is telling Timothy, don't let these people quarrel. Don't let them argue. It's preaching the wrong gospel. And then Paul continues on and says, Timothy, present yourself as a worker that's approved and a worker who's not ashamed. Now, I've heard this phrase used a lot uh, in different contexts. This idea of being approved and not ashamed. But Paul is telling Timothy to be a worker who's um, approved and not ashamed, not because he's concerned about being ashamed in front of the world, but being ashamed by Jesus. By not being concerned about being approved by the world, being a worker who's approved by the world. He's not saying, oh, you need to do something that people like. He's saying you need to be an approved worker for Jesus. When Jesus sees the work, he approves. So what do we need to know from this little passage of scripture here, this letter from the prison? Well, again, what we do represents other people. And as Christians, our behavior represents Jesus to the people we encounter. That's what Paul is getting at. Our behavior, if you claim the name of Jesus, you say, I'm a Christian, your behavior, our behavior together, collectively, represents Jesus to the people we encounter, to the world. And that's how Jesus intended it. If you look at the language of the New Testament, the words that Jesus uh, gives to his followers, apostles, that's a fancy church word these days. Originally, it just meant those who are sent, the sent ones. Apostles is, is a Greek word for people who are sent. Um, ambassadors, messengers, 
um, proclaimers of the gospel, people who tell the story of Jesus. This is the, what's given to the name of Christians. They're not even so much called Christians. They are apostles and ambassadors and, and messengers, evangelists, people who share the gospel. Paul tells Timothy that Christians are to represent Jesus with words and actions. How do non-Christians or people who don't attend church meet Jesus? So we talk a lot about that in, in church, especially lately. We've been talking about reaching people who aren't Christians. We're talking about reaching people who aren't in church. Well, how do they meet Jesus? I mean, you, they could have a miraculous moment. I'm not negating that. They could have a walking down the road and Jesus just appears with them as what happens in the Bible. That could happen. But often, the cases, the way that people meet Jesus is that they meet Christians first. They encounter followers of Jesus. They encounter ambassadors of Jesus. They encounter apostles, people that God has sent with a message. As Christians, our behavior represents Jesus to the people we encounter. Our behaviors, our words, our attitudes present a story, present an image. They tell a story. They paint a picture of who Jesus is especially to those people who don't know them, don't know Jesus. And so if we claim the name of Jesus, if we say, I'm a follower, I'm a believer, not only are we saying that we believe certain things about him, but we represent him. And people will only ever encounter the Jesus that we embody. Now that's a bold statement. But people that aren't a part of the church, that don't know Jesus, will most likely only ever encounter Jesus. Their understanding of who Jesus is will be shaped by the people who bear Jesus' name. The world will decide who Jesus is based on how Christians act. It's like we're signing Jesus' name on our work and our words. So as Jesus looks at our lives as individuals, as a local church, as the global church, right? If Jesus looked at that, if he came and inspected the work, would he approve? Would he say, this represents me well? This is what I had in mind. This is painting the picture of who I am. Or would he be ashamed? That's what Paul is telling Timothy here. Be approved workers, not by the world, be approved by Jesus. Would Jesus be ashamed of what he saw when he saw us? And this is a heavy, heavy word this morning. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I don't know. I hope so. What does it look like? What do I need to do to be an approved worker? How do I know if what I'm doing represents Jesus well? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the first and probably the most important thing you can do is invite the Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus. Discipleship, being an ambassador, an apostle, a representative of Jesus, is becoming more like Jesus in our nature and behaviors. Right? And so while some people get caught up in arguing over ideas, I believe we should be putting our energy and effort into drawing ourselves closer to Jesus so that he can shape us. 
So the, the first step is invite Holy Spirit to make you more like Jesus. Holiness, I mean, we're a Nazarene church. We're part of a holiness tradition, a holiness movement. Holiness is the reality that only God can make that transformation. Holiness, when properly understood, is the idea that God transforms people. And no amount of cleaning yourself up is, is going to be enough. You cannot make yourself like Jesus. That is a work that God does through the Holy Spirit. And that understanding of life as a follower of Jesus is the reason why I'm a, a Nazarene today. Because God says right now matters. The way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we behave is important to him. Not only in a, in a valuatory sense, like, oh, do you measure up? But God doesn't want us to continue to live in unreconciled relationship and brokenness and suffering and in, in, uh, being shaped by the world. He cares too much about us to let us continue in the ways of the world. And so he says, invite the Holy Spirit into your life. Allow it, the fancy word, the church word, to sanctify. It means that God is making us like Jesus. If you want to make sure that you're telling the, telling the right story, painting the right picture, uh, preaching the right gospel, the first thing you need to do is let God transform you. You can't make yourself holy. Um, but you can ignore God as God works to make you holy. You can resist God as, as God tries to transform uh, your heart and your mind and your soul. And so the invitation in response to these words from Paul is to allow but more than just passively allow, seek and desire for. May it be a prayer that you pray often, Holy Spirit, make me like Jesus. Right. Seek the, the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And that brings us to kind of the, the truth that I want us to all walk away with today. Um, there's just one thing, and then if you forget everything else and whatever, remember this one thing. We've got a slide for the screen here. Um, I think if I did it well, yeah. Only a life fully transformed by God can proper, properly represent Jesus. So as Christians, we're going out there, we're signing Jesus' name to the work that we're doing, to the conversations that we're having, to the, the stuff we're posting on social media, to the, the relationships we have with people that we work with or our neighbors. We're putting Jesus' name on all of that. And the only way that we can properly represent Jesus when we're signing our name, that we're not telling the wrong story about who he is, is come to the realization that only a life transformed by God can properly represent Jesus. And so we can say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and start telling the story about who Jesus is, but if we have not been transformed, if our life is not shaped by the Holy Spirit, if Jesus is not our mentor, our teacher, if he's not our king, then we're telling the wrong story. Only a life fully transformed by God can properly represent Jesus. People who bear the name of Jesus do not possess his character and nature tell the wrong story about who Jesus is. Right? If, if we are Christians in name only, then we're telling the wrong story about who Jesus is. Being a Christian is more than uh, being a team to be on. I'm on this side. I'm on the Christian team. Um, we're on the winning side. Um, following Jesus is more than a system of ideas about who God is. 
To be a disciple means to share the gospel of Jesus with our words, yes, um, our attitudes, our actions, and our very nature. We are signing Jesus' name on our lives. Do you think Jesus would look at Christian culture in America today and say, yeah, that represents me well? You can answer that however you see fit, but that's the question that Paul is asking Timothy to address. To be approved workers, not to be ashamed of what we've put forth in the name of Jesus. And then he wraps up by saying, make sure that people are rightly handling the word of truth. Now, I've grown up in a tradition, and I've heard this phrase used a lot to talk about interpreting scripture, and I think there's some element there, like delivering good interpretations of the scripture. But I think it's bigger than that. When he says rightly handling the word of truth, this word of truth about who Jesus is, about who God wants his church to be, Rightly handling the word of truth means living lives shaped in response to that word of truth that we've received. To handle the word correctly means to allow it to shape us. We hear the gospel, we understand the gospel, we live out the gospel individually and as a community. Hearing the truth isn't very meaningful if we don't embrace it and embody it. And only then can we be workers who are approved by Jesus. We are shaped by him, by his spirit. We can be workers approved by Jesus, not ashamed for misrepresenting Jesus. Only a life fully transformed, fully surrendered, only a life shaped by Jesus can properly represent Jesus to the world. And so the question for us today, as it has been often lately, Do we want people to know Jesus? I I hope the answer is yes at this point. Do we want people that don't know Jesus to know Jesus? And if if the answer is yes, then his church must not only bear his name, but it must bear his nature. So we seek to be like Jesus. So we can present ourselves to God as workers Approved by King Jesus. If you hear this message as a criticism today, it's not what it's intended to be. It's meant to be an encouragement, an invitation to seek the holy life. We want to be people that when we encounter others, they meet Jesus. And only a fully transformed, fully surrendered, Jesus-shaped life can properly represent Jesus to the world. So seek, desire the Holy Spirit to work in your life.